0: This is Recorded Future, inside threat intelligence for cybersecurity.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 161 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from The Cyberwire. Our guest this week is Rick Howard, chief analyst and chief security officer at The Cyberwire. Rick Howard's career includes stops in the U.S. Army in signals intelligence, teaching computer science at West Point, and pioneering roles in threat intelligence for the military. He's the former chief security officer at Palo Alto Networks, where he helped create and managed their Unit 42 threat intelligence team. He shares his insights on his career as a network defender, his take on the essential role of threat intelligence, and what he looks for when hiring members of his team. Stay with us.
0: I guess I got my start as a cybersecurity person from my training in the army. I I spent uh, 23 years as a signal officer, uh, where I learned where I deployed uh, communications in the early days, tactically, and then later on for garrison systems, right? And then I was right there when the, the internet was coming on board, so all that stuff essentially came over to the Army Signalers to figure out how to do that for Army personnel. So I got to where I got my training. So one of my latest things I did was they, well, they introduced Unix into the Army's uh, communication system uh, back in the early 90s. So uh, it was right after I went to grad school, and um, uh, that's kind of where I got my start, thinking about using computers for communication and then how to secure them. And uh, you spent some time at West Point as well, yes? That was such a great job, and I can't believe they let me do that job. You know, imagine <laughs> me teaching cadets how to be you know, how to be computer scientists. Um, but it was fantastic. Uh, West Point's a beautiful place. Uh, on the Hudson and um, we lived in this fantastic neighborhood and you know in the army they do everything by rank so everybody with the same rank lived in the same neighborhood Hmm. so I was a captain and a major there and everybody had two kids a a minivan and a dog right and so um, every Friday night uh, we would uh, do these barbecues at the little park across the street from my house and it was all fenced in, so everybody would bring their kids down, and the parents would be up at the top where the gate was uh, and kick the kids back into play, and we would you know cook uh, hamburgers and hot dogs every friday I mean it was just a fab- fabulous place, yeah, uh, and um, I taught computer science there for a number of years and just had a blast and and so when you wound up your career there with the army, where did you head next? Well, the interesting thing was my last job in the Army was I ran the Army Computer Emergency Response Team, which is essentially the CISO for the Army. We didn't have CISOs back then, but that's what essentially it was. Um, My main function was to coordinate offensive and defensive operations for the Army so they wouldn't step on each other you know, because mm. back in those days, the intelligence arm did all the um, cyber operations offensive. And then another complete command did the defensive piece. And sometimes they didn't like to talk to each other. So my, <laughs> my job was to it make stopped. sure. Yeah,
1: <laughs> It sounds like I, I, I'm just
0: imagining you learning a whole lot about diplomacy from that assignment. <laughs> and I worked at this fantastic place. Okay, it was called the Army's Information Dominance Center, because we didn't know what the internet was going to be back then. And the guy that built it was a Star Trek fan, and uh, he didn't want it to be, uh, you know, Cubicle City. He knew that they were going to bring VIPs uh, in to see what the Army was doing in this new thing called Cyber. So he wanted it to look cool. So he flies out to Paramount Studios and says, hey, we want to build the bridge of the Starship Enterprise for our Army Information <laughs> Dominance Center. And they let him do it. So for two and a half years, I got to work in this place, which had a captain's chair that I sat in every day. Didn't do anything, oh in it, but I'm, I'm going to sit in it, you know, because yeah. you, know, you have to. Had a big screen up front, had pods on the side, it had a raised platform, you know, where Wharf would normally stand. Right, um, right. And, <laughs> and behind Wharf, uh, it had a conference room where the doors opened to closed automatically. And I swear, I am not making this update. The doors had the sound effect that said, Psh! It's like, it really? Did. Yeah, and we walk through it all the time just because. <laughs> just for fun? Oh my God. Uh, so that's where I first started learning about cybersecurity at scale, right? Uh, we were, the Army right. was just making it up um, as we were going along. And I remember the first case I had um, was this guy that he owned the Army network. He was all over us in every base, camp, and station around the world. Uh, uh, and he was uh, a conspiracy nut. Uh, he wasn't doing anything like cyber espionage or cyber warfare, but he was convinced that the Army, and by the way, all the services, he wasn't just in the Army's network, he was in everybody's <laughs> network, right? But he was convinced that we had the secrets for the alien invaders in our networks, all right. So his oh. whole purpose was to mm-hmm. find those secret documents. So <laughs> we, we go through this big drill, and we uh, coordinate with the British uh, authorities because he's a British citizen. They knock on his door, they arrest him, uh, and then he's out on the street the next day and then spent the next 40 years fighting um, uh, legal action to get him to the States for a trial. He has still not been tried. For that. Huh. <laughs> that
1: thing, Is yeah. this just a case of somebody who has a, a bee in their bonnet and a whole lot of persistence
0: in time? Yeah, that's, that's the original persistent threat. <laughs> 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 so that's how I got started in all this. And then I did this thing that I wish I, if I'd have thought about it, um, I would have been a genius, but I just kind of, you know, fell into it. I went to, when I retired from the Army, I went to work for a Um, a security firm that had nothing to do with the government. You know, people like me, old army officers, would typically go work for one of the big um, systems integrators like, you know, Lockheed Martin or Raytheon. Because because they're kind of, you know, military-like, pseudo-military. Yeah. Uh, But I didn't do that. I went to work for uh, one of the original MSSPs. It was called Counterpane. It was the company that uh, Bruce Schneier founded, you know, back in the day. Um, And... And that was the smartest thing I ever did because uh, I had to get out of the government mindset um, and uh, I had to learn how to be a commercial uh, business person. And uh, that was the smartest thing I ever did. Well, what was that transition like for you? Was it a <laughs> bit of a culture shock? Oh, my God. Yeah, I, I I knew coming out of the military that I was going to have to tone my leadership style down. Okay. I just, you know, (laughs) because, you know, on the service, you say things and, you know, people do them. Uh, So I, on purpose, uh, was, you know, holding, you know, really toning it down a a lot. And after that first year, the, during my performance review, my boss said, you know, you really need to tone down that army leadership thing. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So that was a, that was a bit of a culture shock for me. (laughs) So where did you go next? Um, I got the opportunity to go work uh, in, my, in the field that I love, which is cyber intelligence. Uh, VeriSign, a big, uh, one of the original big uh, important security firms, uh, they had this small business unit called iDefense, which produced commercial cyber intelligence for their customers. And, and so they needed someone to run it, and so I got to go do that. And it was fantastic because... Um, you know, by this time, I didn't have any clearances uh, from the mm. government anymore. And uh, really, the, one of the big things for eye defense back in the day was that they really had a human intelligence service, meaning they put people on the ground in lots of weird places around the world just to see what was going on. So if I, when I was in the Army, if I wanted to go talk to a Chinese hacker, you know, that would take two years of planning. Seventeen generals would have to say yes, and then they would probably change their mind right before they went out the door because it's too risky. Right. But at mm-hmm. eye defense, we had no government ties. Right. And so if I wanted to see what the Chinese hackers were doing, I'd just say, hey, go talk to the guy, go have breakfast with him and see what he's doing. And they would tell us what they were doing. So it was, you know, hmm. it was a really interesting time. So you're, you're enjoying your experience there. What led you to being a CISO? I've always thought that the CISO or the CSO was the ultimate job for a network defender. All right, that's the probably the highest job you can get in our field in my mind. So I was constantly looking for an opportunity uh, to take one of those jobs on, because I had learned all these things in the Army and working in the commercial sector about how the adversaries work. I wanted to see if I could actually take a, an organization and actually do something meaningful, right? Um, and the, and you know this from talking to a lot of CISOs and people that want to be CISOs today, but you can't be a CISO un, unless you've been one, right? It's this, mm-hmm. it's this tri- paradox, right? The, the nobody wants to hire a CISO unless you've been a CISO. So it's really hard to break in. So I got the opportunity to go work for a company because uh, my best friend from the army, by the way, was in this organization that was looking for a new CISO. uh, And I got to go do that um, for the first time. And it was a huge learning experience. It was a company called Task. They were kind of a mini systems integrator. uh, And I got to get my feet wet about what it means to be a CISO.
1: What was that trans- transition like? I mean, what sort of things
0: uh, did you have to learn along the way? Well, it was interesting because uh, my predecessor had purchased all the toys. He had every tool that you would ever have wanted, all right? And he had them huh. deployed. Uh, and, and But he ran out of money uh, when he started to hire the people to manage it. So we had, you know, world-class cybersecurity tools, but we had a sub- I don't know tier 1 list of folks you know, these were really motivated people but uh, they had no experience all right and so the big the, way, the big thing i had to solve was how do we bring those people up to speed quickly to manage all these high tech tools we had and it was a lot more difficult than the way i just described it and how long were you there i was you know one of my uh, it shows up in my resume like that i was only there for a short time because i got this fantastic opportunity My old boss at VeriSign, the guy that uh, was the CEO there, uh, Mark McLaughlin, uh, he left before I left VeriSign to uh, go to Palo Alto Networks and take the company public, which he did. After he left, um, I went over to TAS to be the CISO. But Mark loved what iDefense could do when I was at VeriSign. It never made any money, by the way, okay? But uh, it was just this unique capability that the company had, and he loved it. So about a year after he went over to Palo Alto Networks, he called me and said, "All those things you were telling me that was going on in the cyber world, we're doing them here, and she can help us get it done." So, I, I left my first CISO job at Task and went to be the chief security officer for Palo Alto Networks.
1: Now that strikes me as being a, a an opportunity for scaling. There, I mean, that's a that's a different
0: size organization. Yes, yes, yeah, gigantic and different in that you know. Pile out the networks when I joined one of the big security firms, um, but typical of most companies, uh, they hadn't applied everything they know uh, to their own organization, all right? So it was an opportunity to take their expertise, which they had a lot. They had When I first joined, it was only about 3,000 people, and most <laughs> of those were security engineers. Uh, and they knew a lot about how the adversaries worked in cyberspace, Okay, but then it was, the idea was to transition that knowledge into an operational arm of the internal company, which is fantastic. The other thing I got to do was build their first intelligence program, Okay, which is, uh, we named Unit 42, and uh, it was uh, designed to be a public-facing cyber threat intelligence group, because the company knew a lot about what was going on with cyber adversaries, but they didn't have anybody dedicated to telling the world how smart they were. So one of my first tasks was to build this organization. And uh, and it was a blast because they, they said, you know, make it the world-class cyber threat organization and then go hire some of the best people to run it, which I did. So uh, it was fantastic.
1: Yeah, and that's where you and I first crossed paths Uh, crossed paths, uh uh, you would, are uh, you were a regular guest on the CyberWire, explaining uh,
0: some of the things, uh, some of the research that you and your team were doing at Unit Forty Two? Yeah, it was, and it was wonderful because um, you know, in my entire career, I've been doing cyber intelligence. Uh, you know, back when I was in the army, when I was uh, when I first transitioned to the commercial world, um, but in every job I ever had, there was I always had one to two things happen. Right, fantastic analysts, but crap data or fantastic <laughs> data and crap analysts. Or I didn't have fantastic and fantastic. Uh, when I went to Palo Alto Networks, um, I was going to get fantastic data because you know everybody has a firewall, and those firewalls are collecting intelligence. So lots of things to look at. And they gave me permission to go hire the smartest people I could, and I did. So for the first time in my career, I had the data that I needed to be good, and I had the personnel that I needed to be good. And we found all kinds of interesting things.
1: Well, uh, give us some insights uh, on your perspective when it comes to threat intelligence. What part does that play in an
0: organization's defensive posture? Well, when I first started doing this, intelligence wasn't a mandatory thing. Um, It was always, you know, in the early days, it was considered to be sort of extra. Only the most well-resourced organizations Would have one. But that has definitely changed in the last 10 years. It's become obvious to most network defenders that if they're going to have any chance of preventing bad guys from breaching their networks, the first thing that's going to happen is they have to have ways to inform how they're going to defend their enterprise. And what happened back in like, say, 2010, uh, the Lockheed Martin research team uh, wrote this white paper about intrusion kill chains, which fundamentally changed how we all thought about defending our enterprise. In the old days, before that paper came out, we would do this passive defense in depth, basically uh, throwing defensive controls, you know, general purpose defensive controls into our network and hope that the bad guys would run into them. Lockheed Martin's big insight was that adversaries, regardless of their motivation— And regardless of the tools they use to accomplish their tasks, they all basically have to do the same seven things. And if you build prevention controls for each of those seven things, you could build a defensive posture for all the known adversaries at each of those phases. And you can't do that unless you have an intelligence team. So in the last 10 years, that's kind of where most intelligence um, organizations have focused their efforts.
1: What sort of suggestions do you have for organizations who are shopping around for threat intelligence? What sort of things should they keep in mind when
0: they're you know, looking to source that sort of thing? Yeah, that's a really great question. And, uh, and there's a difference between hiring a news service and hiring a, a threat intelligence service. And the distinction is if you can't do anything with the information that you are receiving from the service, that's news. All right. But if you are receiving intelligence that you can make decisions on, that's an intelligence service. And there's all kinds of different intelligence services. There's kill chain intelligence services. There's people that monitor the dark web and everything uh, in between. But the point is for uh, CISOs and intelligence groups is if they can make a decision with the information they are getting, then that's uh, what they should be looking for. Hmm.
1: And that's, in your estimation, I mean that, that that is a worthwhile investment these
0: days. It is it is essential. I mean, you in today's current environments, okay, we pretty much know, you know about ninety five percent of the active adversary campaigns running on the internet on any given day, right? That's a lot. I mean, it, uh, it, so since we know that, uh, the idea that you would take that information and convert that into prevention controls down the intrusion kill chain for the security posture that you have you can't do that unless you have an intelligence team
1: i want to switch gears a little bit and get your take on um advice for folks who are entering the business when Ah. you're mentoring people um what sort of advice do you give them for for getting their start
0: um i get that question a lot all right and uh The thing that I'm looking for when I'm hiring somebody, you know, you go through the list of requirements for the job and to see if they're, you know, in the ballpark. But what you really want from a cybersecurity person, a network defender, a intelligence operative, is this passion for learning, right, to learn it on their own. They don't really have to know a bunch to be a cybersecurity professional. They need to understand operating systems a little bit. They need to understand networks a little bit. But what they really need to do, their real skill set that I am looking for, is their ability to solve problems on their own. One of the uh, original questions I have when I'm interviewing somebody is I'll go through the list of job requirements. But my last question is always, what are you running at your house? Because if this potential employee is not running a Linux box that he built himself, he's not smart, <laughs> he's not smart enough to be on my team, okay? <laughs> so uh, it's not that you have to know Linux. Uh, it's just that you have to be smart enough to tackle these strange problems and figure them out yourself because I right. don't know how to solve them, all right? And I'm going to hand this big dripping bag of problems to this person uh, and say, go solve it. And they, they need to be able to do that on their own. So uh, that would be the advice. The way you do that is... Uh, Read as much as you can. Read all the technical material that you can get your hands on. Do stuff at home. Practice what you're going to do. Read books. Okay. Read stuff out of our industry because that's going to give you insight about uh, how you might uh, apply your craft to different things. Uh, Just consume as much material as you possibly can. And I would give one more thing for them. They should practice writing and speaking because I've had some really smart people work for me in my career, uh, but they couldn't convey what they knew to people that didn't know what they know, right? Mm. So you have to practice you know, communicating what you know to people that are, that are not as smart as you. And the way you do that is you write and you speak in public. So there you go, that's the easy way to get into the cybersecurity world. Read as much as you can, write essays, and uh, speak in public. And invest in a Linux box. (laughs) Yeah, and if you play Fortnite at home, uh, you get an extra added bonus for coming to work for me. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. All right, Rick Howard, thanks for joining us. Thank
1: you. Our thanks to Rick Howard for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at RecordedFuture.com Intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Caitlin Mattingly, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by The CyberWire with executive editor Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner.